podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Welcome to Run With It, the podcast that brings you business ideas from established entrepreneurs. Each episode, you'll hear a new business idea and the exact steps our guest would take to get started. Follow through and you can earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Here are your hosts, Chris Justin and Ethan Janney. I'm Chris Justin. And I'm Ethan Janney. And on today's podcast, we have Rob Fitzpatrick. He is an entrepreneur of 13 years. His first business was funded and the rest have been bootstrapped. He's the author of The Mom Test, a book about how to talk to customers and figure out if your business is a good idea. Perfect for our show. Uh, He went through Y Combinator in 2007. He describes himself as a techie who eventually learned sales. He currently lives in Barcelona, Spain. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk about ideas. It's our pleasure. For the listener, this podcast, we're not going to talk so much about what Rob has already done. We'll save that for the end. But he's going to bring you a new business idea that you can take and run with. So Rob, kick it off. What is the idea that you would like to share with our listeners? So I think a cool space, a cool opportunity, especially now that everyone's at home with their kids and you know struggling, how do I educate them? How do I... Whatever is the idea that was proposed by Union Square Ventures a couple of years ago called Syllabus 2.0. And there's a ton of different ways that you can take this. You can turn it into a scalable VC-backed company. You can turn it into a hobby project where you content market with it to build a list. It can be a bootstrap business. There's a lot of different options. Also, a bunch of different customer segments, which I like. You want to choose the customers you care about. You can target this at parents, at teachers, at schools, at universities. You can attack the textbook manufacturers. And the basic idea is that there's a, let's say you're, you've got your kid at home or you're a teacher and you're meant to be teaching science. Uh, you're meant to be talking about the planets. You go, okay, well, I know about the planets. Like I know those facts. I know those information. But translating that into an engaging activity or lesson, how do you actually spend the hour in a way that will keep the student's attention and deliver the learning outcomes and make them feel excited to be there? keeps their energy, their engagement high. That's the difference between a topic or a curriculum and a lesson plan or a, an activity, a, a workshop. And there's a big gap there. And often teachers and certainly parents are expected to figure this stuff out on their own as if it's easy. Like, yeah, you know the facts about science, just find an hour-long lesson and then repeat that every day for a school year for the rest of your life. That's an incredible amount of content to just invent out of nowhere. And I used to run a workshop business where we designed educational curriculums, both for our own workshops and we worked for clients. Like big top five global universities would hire us to design new courses for them. And it's hard. Designing a one-day workshop might take months, right? So you got to assume that if you're meant to just be a parent and just figure out fun things to do with your kids that are educational all day, that's a nightmare. Uh, And they got to now. It's crucial. And so I think there's a big opportunity to treat the lesson plan as the product. And there's a bunch of different businesses that can spin out from that. The simplest one, the bootstrapped one, is activities for parents where you could do something like, like for example, I was riffing, uh, I'm working on a series right now that's teachable moments in Minecraft. And one of the ideas is like, how does a kid understand different types of risk? Well, every kid who plays Minecraft, the first rule you learn if you start watching Minecraft YouTube videos is never dig straight down. (laughs) And the reason is, although it's safe, 99 times out of 100, eventually you're going to hit a giant underground cave with a lake full of lava at the bottom. 
And so kids know that in Minecraft, you don't say it's always been safe before. You say it might go wrong once and then I lose everything. And that's exactly the sort of risk profile that's so hard to teach in the real world. And so it's this simulated environment. The kids have experience with it. They can be like, oh, I shouldn't cross the street without looking for the same reason you should never dig down. Like, because it only has to go wrong once. It doesn't matter how many times it's gone right in the past. So that's a teachable moment. And you can imagine building a little one-hour activity where the parent plays Minecraft with the kids or even just has a conversation. That's what I'm talking about when I mean lesson plan. It's an activity which has an educational outcome. And no one's really productized these. They're always considered busy work that someone just does alongside their real job, but it's a specialty skill. And when they're done well, it's a hundred times better than when they're done in a mediocre way. And it scales really well. It spreads really well. Uh, you can do this for school topics, for university topics, for MBAs. There's so many different applications. So that's the core of the business. Cool. I want to give a shout out right away here. My sister-in-law, she's got a website and it's called Kid World Citizen which I came up with the name for. I'm very excited about that. But, uh, <laughs> yourself on the back but yeah, she's, <laughs> she's a padding as we speak. She was teaching and then she had a couple of adopted kids and they're all about multicultural integration. They have kids adopted from China and Ethiopia and she creates lessons plans for teachers. And there's actually another website called Teachers Pay Teachers, which is literally teachers looking for lessons plans go to this site, they pay a couple of bucks to download a PDF that some other teacher has created. And actually, she and my wife actually make some money creating lessons plans for other teachers. And actually, they sometimes they call it teachers make millions because some <laughs> teachers are, are making pretty good money just making good lesson plans. It is a very difficult, difficult thing to, to grasp. Absolutely. And there's, there's independent people who are doing it. Uh, and this happens at every level from schools up through MBA programs. Uh, for example, if you write case studies about business situations, you can post them on these kind of case study marketplaces. And then if another professor wants to use them in their course, they pay $3 per student to use that activity in their class. So if you think of an MBA class, 100, 200, 300 students, that's a significant purchase, right? It's several hundred dollars per class that they're willing to spend, get a good lesson plan. Now, of course, MBAs are better funded than an elementary school. They've got more discretionary budget to work with, but it's very much in need. And these marketplaces are great and people go through them, but it, and I would see that as a, um, it's still rough. Like if you're trying to use this, there's big gaps in what's available there. You have to do a lot of searching. You have to do a lot of evaluation. So to me, that feels like the perfect evidence that there is the need. It's being done in this rough and ready kind of impromptu way by individuals who are doing a great job. They're making some money. And I think this could be the foundation of so many different types of great businesses. One thing that you mentioned that I really want to dive into, you had said that a great lesson plan is worth 100 times more than a mediocre one. That may not be the exact words used, but that was my takeaway from it. One objection that came to mind immediately when I saw this idea was something like Khan Academy is out there, and it may not be exactly at the level that my child is at. Let's say I wanted to create an educational platform or an educational program for my kid at home during the summer, but maybe it's 50% as good and it requires no work for me up front. Why is it valuable to get that extra 50%? So with teaching, you know, I spent three years running an education business and it's very common, like a lot of uh, students will show up to a classroom or people will show up to a workshop or a seminar or whatever, and they're expecting to suffer in order to extract the knowledge. They're like, I'm going to go and it is my job as the student to pay attention. And 
often, not all teachers, but a lot of teachers view it the same same way. The teacher's like, it's my job to share the knowledge and it's the student's job to pay attention and, and gather it. But if the lesson plan is good enough, the lesson plan does the work on behalf of the student and it keeps them engaged without them needing to put in effort. So simple things like with workshops, there's a rule that every 20 minutes you want to switch the teaching format. This is actually my rule. I shouldn't say it's a rule. Uh, it's like, <laughs> we all pat ourselves <laughs> on the back today. <laughs> um, but the idea is like, if you do 20 minutes of lecture and then you switch to a different format, like small group discussion or a worksheet exercise or something else, you know, get everyone up and work on the walls. Just like the change in tempo from it being you listening to me to you doing something else, it refreshes everyone's energy levels. So that's a really simple idea. But if you kind of put that into practice, suddenly it totally changes the learning experience. And it goes from something where the parents are having to convince the kids, come on, it's learning time, sit down, to it being an absolute joy, where people are like, yeah, that was so fun. You can tell. So there's lots of experts who, who teach, right? And there's lots of lessons made by experts, which you could you know, use. But there's this rule. I think I heard this from Alex Osterwalder, the guy who wrote uh, Business Model Generation and invented the Business Model Canvas. And he said that if the workshop is well enough designed, like you can tell how well the workshop is designed, a full day workshop, by how energetic people are at the end of it. And if you're an expert, but you design your lesson plan poorly, people finish just shattered after a full day. They're like, oh, I'm so tired. They can't even talk to each other. They've just been working so hard to pay attention. Whereas if you design it properly, they end the day and they're high on energy. They're elated. They're like, yeah, let's do that again. I can't wait to wake up at eight in the morning and do that again tomorrow. And so I would see that as the advantage. If I can jump in here, that's so interesting because people generally associate that feeling of being drained at the end of working really hard. And that means that you had a, a good day because I, I sucked the marrow out of, <laughs> of the day. I, I gave it everything that I had. I'm exhausted. So you're saying that's exactly the opposite. Yeah, I'm saying that that's a sign that the student has been forced to compensate for the lack of design in the lesson. And that's often the case. but it. It really changes. Like you don't have to force people into it. It becomes a fun activity. It becomes something people look forward to, especially for parents who spend all day wrestling with their kids. Like the fact that this can be a fun thing. Uh, like one idea that's been in my head, I, I would love to do, but I'm never going to, is a curriculum for parents, which is like kids' philosophy hour. And it's just like each week, it's a fun one hour activity that teaches them one of these concepts that they're never going to learn in school about right and wrong, about morality, about risk, about whatever, but not in like a didactic, this is how it is way, but in sort of like an exploratory, fun, engaging way. It's different when the students love it. And the teachers can feel the difference as well. Like I saw a little video the other day about hand washing. You know, everyone's like posting this like little thing. This is how to properly wash your hands. 20 seconds, you rub the back, you rub the front, you slide your fingers together, you grip your thumb, like boring, right? Dumb. But there's, uh, I saw a little video clip where someone was wearing white gloves and they dropped a bit of black paint on their hands to represent the soap. And they sort of like just washed their hands and they're like, look how many places this hasn't gotten to. And then they did the proper hand washing and it was like incredible. Uh, and it was like, wow, the whole thing's covered. And you can see that each of the silly little steps that happen during hand washing is actually crucial to get full coverage and disinfection. And I was immediately like, wow, every teacher should be doing that exercise with their kids because kids would love to be rubbing black paint all over their hands, you know, with gloves, obviously. And it's like, wow, like that's the difference between knowledge and actual lesson plan. It's hard to get right. And there's great ones out there. Like there's such a cool one that exists for demonstrating gravity. 
where you've got like a rubberized sheet and a heavy thing in the middle and you're throwing balls. And there's a few of them, but they're very piecemeal. They've kind of been stumbled across and then shared. And then everything else is super boring. And if you could make this consistently across entire learning journeys, it would just be such a powerful product. And whether you want to turn that into subscriptions, into textbooks, into an actual school, there's so many different business models you could wrap around that core product innovation, but it's hard to create. Like This is a case you can't just throw technology at. There's a lot of user testing to build proper education. If you want to write curriculum for kids, like you need to spend a lot of time with kids trying to teach them this thing and see what works, see where they're bored. Like when Sesame Street was airing, they would sit kids down and they would have two TVs and it was Sesame Street. And then there was just like a frantic mishmash of like fun cartoons and noises and sounds. (laughs) And they had cameras and they were measuring every time the kids glanced away from Sesame Street to look at the fun explosion on the screen right next to it. They're like, we need to tighten up that section of the show. And you can do the same thing with your curriculum where you're like, oh, wow, I'm starting to lose my students. Like they're having to do work to pay attention. This is a weak spot. And it's like debugging a funnel in a web product. You're like, oh, we've got high churn here. It's like, oh, we're losing our users here. And you can do that through every stage of the educational product journey. And this is why I say it's hard to create because it takes me months to make a good one-day workshop, months of full-time work with user testing, with betas, with all of this. And because of that, it means that for someone who's having to do this frequently, it's just not possible. It needs to be done by other uh, these marketplaces where different people figure out different pieces and share them, or by a company who's able to be like, okay, we can overinvest per hour because then everyone in the world can teach the best possible way to wash your hands or to teach kids about risk or to whatever the learning is. So I'm sold on the benefit, I think, as we get a little bit further into this process. So uh, we've talked about the problem, talked about how you'd solve it just now, and you sold us on it pretty well, at least, at least me. So what kind of... I'm in. Yeah, Ethan's in. (laughs) It seems overwhelming at this point. It seems like it's more than one person can take on. What are some things that someone can do to really get into this idea? The way I would get started is by going direct to parents, especially now while the kids are at home. And I would start playing with the curriculum with parents and basically aim to put out one hour of activity per week. And that gives you like 40 to one leverage or anti-leverage or whatever it would be. But it means you can invest 40 hours of creation and one hour of content, which probably is going to make it pretty good. It'll give you a chance to run it with a few different kids, try it out, refine it, see what's working. And if you could have a clear value proposition where it's like every week you're going to get an activity on this, like every week you're going to get a teachable moment in Minecraft, then the people who subscribe, it's like you wouldn't want to jump between topics every week because then you're going to, what you want to be able to do is build a list and your list growth becomes your KPI. And once you get up to a certain point, like as the list grows, that's an easy to monetize asset. You can do cross promotions, you can do whatever. You can charge directly for it through like Substack or something. And so I'd start small and focused there. Choose what you think is most fruitful. Like you might be like, okay, Earth Sciences has a lot of fun activities. Choose a topic that you think is going to have the low-hanging fruit in terms of easy activities and fun engagement that parents are going to want to share with their kids. Start there. And then you're going to be building up this expertise. You build up the list. Uh, As schools reopen, maybe you can get in where it's like you go direct to teachers. And it's like once a week, you just say for one subject, for one class per week, I'm going to give you a great activity. And it's like, okay, well, hell yeah. As you say, teachers are already buying these things on marketplaces. Like, if they can get this, like, that's great. And if they can count on it every Friday for math, they don't have to lesson plan. 
It's like, what a value proposition. You still need to figure out the monetization. Teachers are notoriously cash poor and schools don't give them discretionary budgets for these sorts of things. But, you, you know, you can get creative around that. So that, that's how it would start. Just to give an idea, I know on the, the site, this Teachers Pay Teachers site, they'll charge, you know, anywhere from two or three to 10 to 15, maybe even up to $50 for a lesson plan. Probably for the types that we're talking about for kids' classrooms, it could be, you know, five to 10 bucks for, for a good lesson plan. And it's worth it for these teachers because even though they don't have a lot, they are cash poor, they also are time poor and they're overstressed. And for them to just put a lesson plan together quickly and they know it's going to be interesting and good, it's worth it. And then the profit comes at the volume, you know, that you can sell it to lots of different teachers. And also the, yeah, I mean, you're basically saying the value prop to a teacher is like, I will save you five hours of prep if you give me $10. And it's like, okay, that's yeah. a good deal. <laughs> And you know it's going to delight your students. It's going to be like the highlight of their week. And they go, yeah, that's good. So in the back of my head, like for years, I've been looking for a way to put the big textbook publishers out of business because I think they're terrible. And they have this incredible moat and a lot of monopoly effects. And I would just love to bankrupt all of them. <laughs> the trouble is, it's a long slog to do so because they're so well defended. So if you understand what makes their monopoly work... Uh, you can use this idea to drive in a wedge and start to attack them if you wanted to go the ambitious way. And this is where I think it transitions into a scalable startup, but it's a pain in the ass to build. It would take forever and you would need funding and stuff. So the way I would think about this if I was doing it is I would treat teachers or parents as the transitional business model, which I use to get to ramen profitable and break even and start slowly building out my team and my expertise and my credibility. Then once the funding climate gets better, I would raise a big-ass round of funding uh, with the intention of putting all the, the textbook manufacturers out of business. So the way they're so locked in is they have a broad library of books. And because they have so many different books to sell, each school or university to them is very high value. Because if you're selling one textbook, like I have one book and it's taught as a textbook at a bunch of schools, but I can't afford to go to those schools to sell one book. It's like not worth my time and it's not worth a salesperson's time. But if I had a thousand books, suddenly it's very worth my time, right? Because that customer is now a thousand times as valuable. And a big part of making sales profitable isn't about getting better at sales. It's about having a more expensive product. Because at a certain point, like sales always takes more or less the same amount of time, you know, within an order of magnitude. Whereas like the pricing can vary by like a lot of orders of magnitude. So that's your biggest lever on making sales profitable. So you need that portfolio, which means like you're not just doing science. Like there was an awesome app, which was so good around teaching earth science, uh, like the weather cycle, the layers of the earth's crust. It was like this interactive iPad app when the iP iPad was new. They went through Y Combinator, I think. And it was so impressive. But like the economics of selling that to a school is just impossible because the, the value per sale is too low. You need like a library and a library obviously takes time to build. And then the other thing that the textbook companies have is because their value per sale is high, they're able to afford a massive on-the-ground sales team. So every year, they literally send a person to every single school and university in America. And they're like, hey, here's our catalog. Like, which like courses do you want a textbook for? And the textbooks come with not very good, but they do come with it, lesson plans and activities, and even in some cases, boilerplate slides that you can use and worksheets. And so you're not just buying a book from the school's perspective, they're buying a lot of time savers for their teachers. And so you can replace that gradually. But yeah, that's what you're up against. 
Yeah, that makes sense from the long-term vision standpoint. It's great that you have that clarity all the way out there. I think it'd be valuable to zoom in at the beginning a little bit more, maybe the parts that are very easy for you because you've done it before repeatedly with your workshops. But for a listener who is enamored by this idea and wants to get started, it may seem intimidating. It may seem intimidating already to uh, to record content that is better than what's out there. There are a lot of producers that are doing explainer videos, for example, on uh, difficult to understand concepts and breaking it down into a simple fashion. So even to get in the game, you have to be able to create a, a piece of content that is on that level. At least that's what it seems like. And, and that in itself is a, a large hurdle for a lot of people. Can you speak to that a little bit? So I probably, I probably slightly misspoke or didn't clarify enough. So the idea isn't that you create the YouTube videos. You're not trying to make a competitor to Khan Academy. You're not actually trying to teach people's kids. What you're trying to do is equip the parent or the teacher with a guide for them to do an incredible job and be the star of the show when they're working with the kids or the students. So it isn't you teaching. It's you giving people the facilitation guidelines and the lesson plans so that they can teach. And where people fall short, like often, like you can Google any number of blog posts and, and guides and they're like, hey, this is a great way to teach math, but they don't go far enough. So what trips people up is often the specific mundane practicalities. So it's things like, should they be in groups? How many minutes do I spend on this? How do I explain this task to them? What do I do if someone's yelling? Or like, oh, these are messy materials. Like, how do I worry about that? It's these little practical questions that happen during execution. So what I would be doing is like, if I was trying to develop a new lesson, let's say it's the hand washing thing. You know, it's a simple, concrete example. Whatever, everyone should be doing it with their kids. Why not? It's like, okay, what type of paint? Clearly, some types of paint are going to stain everything and other types of paint will wash off. That's like an important consideration. Where do you buy it? What's it called? How long does this thing take? What equipment do you need? How messy is it? Questions like that. It's like, okay, good, good to know. And then in terms of actually developing it, I would start by teaching it myself. So I'd go like, let me borrow your kids. And it's like, try to teach this for them. And it's like, oh, well, like, they loved it. And I'd work on that until they loved it. And then I'd take one step back and go like, parents, try this. And ideally, I'd be there watching. But like, that's probably not possible at the moment. So you go like, well, try it and report back. Tell me what happened. And tell me where you got confused. Tell me where you got lost. And what you're doing there is you're basically debugging your facilitation instructions. You're figuring out where you didn't answer a question or where you didn't deal with a concern or where you said something that's misinterpreted. People always think that writing is art, but like writing is product design. The written word is a product which serves a purpose, and you need to user test that and debug it. And that's what people don't do. They write their intent, but their intent doesn't always translate. So if you want to really productize this and build a business on it, you have to go that extra step of user testing it, both with the end user, the student, at whatever age they are, from child to MBA student. And you have to also do it in terms of the person who's going to be the user, which is, in this case, the teacher or the parent. And no one does this. The fact that you're simply doing it is already going to put you ahead of most people who have been trusting their instincts and doing it for a while because no one does the extra step of user testing it. Is there another side of this, um, by the way, just to address Chris's question of partnering maybe with people who are just kind of already naturals at this or have built this, you know, maybe you can look out and, and there's someone on YouTube or there's someone that, that's got a site and they're good at developing lesson plans. And then you don't have to, you could be more of the entrepreneur and less of, the person who's got to do all the testing. You could do some guidance. I think absolutely. And you could even try to poach talent that doesn't know their talent where someone's done a great explainer video or like a great thing. And you go, hey, like, 
that was so good. I'd love to make that something that every parent could do or every teacher could do. Like, can I interview you and get all your facilitation tips? And then you're able to take that extra step to turn it into a lesson plan or a facilitation guide instead of just being content. So yeah, I think that's a great way to approach it where you, you're poaching and reusing the talent. And it has the additional benefit if you do it well is they might be motivated. And if they have an audience, they might be motivated to promote it a bit on your behalf. So that can help solve the early uh, marketing problems where how do you get noticed before you have an audience? Cool. That makes sense. When you're describing how you would make this easier, the word that comes to mind is friction. For me, you're reducing the friction at each stage and that in itself is making it more pleasant. I don't think most people would think about when you say, yeah, I'll just do the hand-washing exercise. They don't think about what type of paint do you need, but there's something in your brain, at least, that has been triggered to sequentially think about how you would do these things. Is that a skill that you think people need to have in order to launch a business like this? It's something that you get from... So for me, I got it because... So I wrote this book, The Mom Test, and I had to do a bunch of workshops and lectures and stuff about it. And then it reached a certain point where like, I didn't want to travel to do every workshop and talk that people wanted me to do. Or like some people, like my the prices I wanted to charge should increase beyond what some customers were willing to pay. So I, I would say, listen, I know these people who are great at doing this, and I would try to send them in to teach on my behalf. I'd clear it with the clients, obviously. And I'd give this person my slide deck or I'd give them my exercises and I would talk through them on the phone and they would go and it would be a disaster. And I'd be like, wow, that's crazy. They know the material. I know they can do it. I've seen them doing customer development. They're amazing. They had my exact slide, like they had all the stuff and it went wrong. And so it was kind of um, like Eric Reese once said that you could figure out all of Lean Startup if all you do is root cause analysis, you'd eventually end up like, why did that go wrong? Why were we so slow? you'd eventually end up at all the principles of Lean Startup from just that one activity. And in terms of this product, I think the same is true of whatever you want to call it. It's not quite user testing, but it's like trying it and seeing where people get bored. Like the combination of the Sesame Street test, where do the students feel they need to make the effort instead of it being easy? Well, that's a place to improve. And then if I hand this off to someone who's trying to teach it, where do they get lost? Where do they get confused? Where do they stumble? That's a bug I need to improve. And you can just iterate on the curriculum like you would any other product. And eventually, the reason I was able to rattle it off quickly is because I've done it a bunch. So I have some intuition now. So I could probably get there faster than you could. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't learn it by uh, trying this stuff and seeing what worked and what didn't. And it's just like, I've been through that already. And I screwed up a bunch of workshops and I embarrassed myself a bunch of times. Eventually, I learned it's good to test it in private before you do it with a paying audience. (laughs) (laughs) What you're describing reminds me of uh, Getting Things Done by David Allen. He really advocates that you break down your tasks into the next physical action that you can take. A lot of people, they don't make uh, task lists, they make topic lists. So they'll write a reminder that's like, work on this client proposal, right? And your brain can't translate that into an action. And because of that, it gets hung up and people procrastinate, right? And it also is more taxing to be walking around with these ambiguous actions in your head. So one thing that a listener can do if they wanted to practice this skill is implement getting things done and see it just practice in your own work, trying to break down what you're doing into just so easy to understand unambiguous steps. (laughs) If you build this skill, like let's say that you pursue this business for a little bit and like whatever, you reach a dead end, it doesn't work. It turns out I'm a stupid person or whatever and I gave you bad advice. It's still a really valuable skill that's going to prove fruitful in your career. Almost nobody can do this. Almost nobody knows how to design education as a product 
which can be handed off to multiple people and scaled. Almost nobody. And we used to work for universities. I ran this education business, right? We designed courses. Top-tier universities, like global top universities with some of the smartest professors in the world would pay us like 20 grand or more to design a course for them. There was this company, like a hot education startup. They'd sold a million dollars worth of workshops to a major client. And then they called me and they're like, we don't know how to design these. They'd sold a vision, but they didn't know what the actual day should be. Gosh, what's the facilitation guy peep rules? Like, how should we arrange the tables? Like, what do we say? Like, where do we call exercises? How do we explain them? So they gave me 60 grand to basically figure out the practical details of this workshop that they'd already sold. Almost nobody can do this. So freelancing is valuable. Freelancing is a financial safety net in addition to your savings, right? Because like, if you lose your job, or your business goes under, or the economy explodes, it's like, well, what protects you? Well, your savings, your friends and family, and you're quick to monetize skills. So I see this one. It's actually like, I used to think that programming was my most valuable freelancer safety net, but it turns out education design is so much more valuable than programming because so many fewer people know how to do it. So that's like an extra incentive to bother learning this, because I, I will admit it's a bit of a pain to learn. <laughs> I, I want to bring up this objection that's coming up for me, and that is uh, if you're making learning easy, right, in the classroom setting for, let's say, younger students, I would love to believe that that just makes their life easier in general. You know, they learn things and they just get everything's just like a positive, a positive exponential growth, right? But is there any place in here where because as the learning facilitator, you're guiding them just so, so smoothly to understand each step that then when they get out and have to understand things on their own, they're like, who's guiding me? Who's telling me what the next step is? How come this is so difficult for, you know, for me to get there? Is there any danger there? Yeah. So this is called in education theory. This is called the zone of proximal development and scaffolding. They're like two complementary uh, education theory things. And the idea is that people learn when... So there's three zones. There's stuff that's too easy. So if you already know how to do addition and you're like forced to do 50 more addition problems, you don't learn anything because it's trivially easy. Equally, if you've never seen calculus before and you're forced to do 50 calculus problems and for every problem, the teacher needs to come over and stand behind your shoulder and walk you through it, you also learn nothing. The zone of proximal development is this Goldilocks zone in between those two extremes where the students can do it, but only with some amount of support. So they can make progress on their own, but they're like missing some little piece. They haven't totally nailed it. And what you do to keep people in their zone of proximal development or the ZPD is you provide scaffolding. So the idea of scaffolding is this a temporary structure which supports people, which you take away as their skills grow in order to keep them in the ZPD. And the biggest challenge of teaching is how do you do this with a classroom full of students? Because the performance boost that has been shown is insane. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I want to say it's like a 400% improvement in student learning speed. If you can go with them one-on-one -on -one and tailor the amount of scaffolding to the current level of skill. And this is why mentorship and apprenticeship works so much better than group teaching. Because when you're dealing with one person, you're able to keep them in their ZPD by manipulating the amount of scaffolding. So in great lesson plans, you can even tell the teacher how to control the amount of scaffolding. You can say like, look, if your students are struggling here, here's the more scaffolded version. And here's what you can take away in order to throw them into more challenge. And for a parent working one-on-one -on -one with their kids, they can manipulate this. And this is, again, something you can put into the lesson plan. And it's so, so powerful. 
And you can see gains in the students that you never would have imagined. I also want to just to be like transparent. I have never worked with kids. I've worked with 16-year-olds up through adults. Uh, I haven't worked with young children. So I'm like, based on what I know about education, I believe that this is fine and all applies to young children as well. But like all of my firsthand experience is 16-year-olds and up, just as a disclaimer. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. (laughs) I would think that it may be easier actually with young children because there's less baggage (laughs) that's accumulated over the years. Well, the one thing I've noticed, you know, just had a young kid and wasn't around them much, you know, I've got a two-year-old right now. The one thing I noticed is like, oh my gosh, his mind is working way differently than I want it to or expected <laughs> it to. And But there are, the good, the good news is there are very, at least I've seen it in just this one case, that the zones of development in which you'll see called out in like a textbook or a reference around what to expect is pretty impressively consistent oh, this is happening in their brain and they're picking up this skill and now they're picking up this skill. So it may be different than what your experience is, but there's probably, I mean, sure there's a place to do what you're talking about on their level. It's like, if you think worksheets and like fill in the blank and stuff, that's probably too scaffolded, you know? For example, let me go back to the hand washing again. I guess it's helpful to keep talking about one concrete example. I can imagine often you'll repeat an exercise multiple times with a group and you'll reduce the scaffolding with each repetition. So for example, the first time you might be like, do it along with me. And then the second time it's like, do it yourself. And then the third time it's like, I'm going to blindfold you and you're going to do it blindfolded. And then at the end, you're going to look at your hands and see where you missed. And that's like gradually reducing the scaffolding as their experience and their expertise with that particular task increases. And you can apply that to almost any subject. I do it a lot with entrepreneurship because that was one of the big things I taught off the back of writing the mom test was like, okay, like I'm going to give you this situation. What would you do in this situation? And then that's highly scaffolded. And then you gradually like add more and more variables and remove more and more support. It's very cool. I want to change gears a little bit and see if this idea would apply in a different industry. I'm thinking about a mechanic or a plumber, for example. Do you think that you could deconstruct a lesson plan for onboarding a new hire? That's a fascinating idea. Uh, I never thought about that. But yeah, I think you could. Onboarding's a mess, man. It is. And that's a high value because you're starting to, from the company's perspective, a small business, they're starting to pay the person and that person is not yet productive. They're probably negative productivity. So if you could make that easier, I think that's super valuable. That's probably a better idea than my idea. Everyone should just do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm trying to expand the scope for the listener here because there may be other interests beyond education. And you can take this idea of onboarding. I know in my previous career, I was uh, an engineer at Shell and I had an intern. And one of the most difficult things to do as a full-time engineer is to take a college kid and have them be productive with their time. <laughs> like, I don't want to give you any responsibility whatsoever because I'm afraid to, you know, if you make a wrong calculation, you blow something up. <laughs> but I want you to learn and to be able to contribute and all these things. It's just, it's a very labor intensive process on my part. And if I invest all that time into you, then I'm not getting my work done. So there's room for people out there who have more of an interest in industry. Yeah, we recently hired a project manager And the first thing I did was buy like seven books. So that's, you know, say a hundred euros that I spent on books. And it's like, read these. And that's like a week of time. Yeah, there's definitely companies are already spending money on this. And that's exactly what you want to see when you're building something new. It's not like give me new money. It's so hard to convince people to give you new money. What you want to do is convince them to give you the money they were spending badly to get the same thing done in a better way. 
that's a much, much easier sale. Do you think that you could go out and reach out to uh, some companies and say, hey, I have this new method for onboarding new employees. I believe that I'll be able to cut your onboarding time in half and save you whatever X dollars. Would that be a place that you could start or how would you approach it? I think like anything else, you'd probably need to give it away for free for during the beta period just to get that credibility and also to make sure it works because it's a case where it's not like you're on fire and I'm going to put you out of off fire. Like it's not like this binary result where they they just need a solution. It's kind of a case where like, look, you guys are already dealing with this, but you're dealing with it kind of poorly and I think I can deal with it better. It's like an Uber pitch. It's like you're already getting taxis, we think we can get you taxis better. But you can't really get advanced validation on that. People aren't going to buy Uber before they can hold and use and try Uber. They need to see the experience and the product. And I would expect that the same is true here. And so your first challenge is going to be like, look, it's free. Just let me try this. Do me a favor by letting me train your new employees for free. Because you kind of need those case studies. And you also need to prove to yourself that actually this does work. It's better. They're usable faster, all of that. So I would probably, if I was trying to do that, I'd start with an industry I knew, obviously. And I would start with friendly first contacts and be like, hey, can I mess with your new hires for a week (laughs) before you deal with them? Please, please, please. And I'd like refine it there. And I would expect that in some cases it would not go terribly well. But that's how you find these rough edges and work on it. Like yesterday, my company just taught its first remote workshop for like a paying client, you know, and they paid us a lot of money. They paid us the same price they would for an in-person workshop. And like remote, it was rough. You know, there were some problems, but like we told them, we're like, Hey, we're trying this new thing. You like us. Will you do us a favor and let us try this? And they did. And you know, it was whatever. It wasn't a disaster. It was just rough. And the next one will be better and so on. Like you got to be willing to go through that, but then eventually you can productize and then you've got a great business on your hands because not many people are willing to go through those embarrassing, rough, like favor asking early stages. Yeah. That's a good tip for listeners. If you've gone through embarrassing, rough, favor asking stages, you've gotten over a large part of the hurdle. <laughs> Use that to your advantage. That separates all the idea people from you. And it, like, it gets rid of all the people with big egos because they're not willing to go embarrass themselves. <laughs> right. Yeah, I had this thought. It's inspiring and disappointing at the same time. And that is that once you get used to failing and not being afraid of it, then you can kind of compound and you just kind of keep being ready to fail fast and get into it and be productive and take advantage. If it's been a while since you've put yourself out there and failed and you're delaying it and you're delaying it and you're delaying it, then it seems that much scarier to fail. You know, <laughs> And then even after that first failure, it's like, okay, well, that happened and it was okay. But you know, you're, you're still a little bit hesitant. I, I think of it as a very motivating something to know to just actually get in there and start failing and making mistakes. (laughs) I have a little example that I use for that exact idea. When's the last time you saw an adult just fall off a bike? (laughs) They're just riding along and they fell off. That doesn't happen. right? So something that a listener can do to test this skill of failing, try and learn how to ride your bike without using your handlebars. If you've never done it, just practice it. You might fall and you might feel like crap, but practice that muscle of just you're going to fail. You might do it in public, not super public right now because uh, of COVID going on. But yeah, that's a good way to practice that skill. If you want to make it a little bit safer, you can intentionally fall off a bike uh, (laughs) in a way that you know is safe, but that will make you look stupid so that you can work through the problem of the embarrassment without without as much uh, risk to your bodily injury. (laughs) 
Rob, we're coming up on time here. Thank you very much for sharing this idea and walking through how you would approach it. There's a lot to take away here. I know I'm excited to listen to this episode again. If you could put a pin on it, what's one thing you'd want our listeners to take away from the conversation? Let me throw in like one more related bonus idea, which will be very quick, and then I'll answer your question. The other one is two years ago in 2018, uh, Union Square Ventures put out a request for startups around Syllabus 2.0. And the idea is that there's an infinite amount of amazing educational content that's out on the web and out in the world. But for a new learner, like I'm trying to learn macroeconomics right now. You know, the world's exploding. I'm curious how the macroeconomic stuff works. It's hard. Like if you're a beginner, you don't even know what to Google for. And so their point with this Syllabus 2.0 was that it's less about creating new content and it's more about creating the learning journey through the content, telling people what they need to consume in which order and what they can ignore. So I think that's another great business uh, still in the education space and the learning space, very relevant now. Uh, with the homeschooling, with the self-education, with the home from work. So that's another good one to look at. And maybe for, depending on your skill set and your interest, maybe easier. The thing I would want you to take away, it was the turning point of my career. So my first startup, I dropped out of grad school to start a business. I got into Y Combinator with a dumb idea. During the interview, we like pitched the idea to PG and he goes, oh, like it's a 10 minute interview. After four minutes, he goes, oh, that I understand it now. And we're like, great. And he's like, oh, it's, it's a terrible idea. You know, we're like, what? And he's like, yeah, it'll, it'll never work. And even if it did, it would never scale. Honestly, I don't, I don't know why you're here. And we're like, you invited us. You flew us here. And, uh, oh, man. And he goes, well, if you could think of a different idea that's better before the meeting ends, like we'll fund that. And we're like, we have six minutes left. He goes, yeah, hurry. We're like, will you help us? And he goes, okay. So we like brain jammed on ideas for a minute. And by the end, he's like, great, yeah, I'm in. And we're like, oh, that was crazy. And so we started this company. But it was clear to us four years later, as we were going bankrupt, that it was a six-minute idea. We'd chosen something that looked good on paper, but which didn't really play to our strengths and which didn't really play to our passions, which is arguably even more important. And the reason this matters is like going through YC and then all the hype and the demo day, and we were in the press and we we're on TV and like... All this stuff, it's very easy to pursue something cynically during the times when you're succeeding. But every business at a certain point in the middle, it hits a dip where it's not succeeding as much as everyone expects it to. And at that point, like what keeps you going? Some people are just martyrs in a way which I, where I'm not, and they're just willing to suffer. But I found it so hard, right? I was like so depressed. I was so bummed out. It took me years to get over the burnout of that business. Because at that point, also, you have investors, you have employees. It's very hard to quit. So you feel like you've built, or at least I felt like I'd built my own prison. And I was like, oh, why did I start this business? This sucks. Like, I'm so trapped here. I'm so unhappy. And so after that, I really determined that I think you don't need to love everything about the business, but you should love something about the business. And you should accept, like, I've accepted that I'm not an ambitious person. I now have enough to cover my life. I haven't had to work for the last few years because I chose easy businesses that played to my strengths and which suited my personality and which used the industry connections I already had. And I was like, wow, like it's easy to get a profitable business running if you're serving customers who you already know. Like I know the education industry is the easiest thing in the world to call a bunch of universities and go, hey, you want to buy my stuff? And they go, yeah. And it's like, oh, well, great. All right, we're profitable now. It's total night and day. And it blows my mind that I didn't think of that with my first business. I was like, yeah, I'm going to start from scratch in an industry I know nothing about with a business model I have no connection to because like, it's so valuable if I succeed. Paul Graham and Sam Altman and stuff, they say it's easy to start a hard business because people believe in your ambitiousness and they want to support you. But like, I found the opposite. I found it very hard to start a hard business. 
And I, I found it easier to start an easy business. And then like once you've got that platform of stability, it's like, yeah, by all means, start another one that's more ambitious. So I would say play to your strengths and accept like what makes you happy and the way you want to spend your days. A business is a long haul. It's five years. Like don't spend five years being unhappy. If you hate marketing, don't start a business that requires you to do marketing all day, right? This is pretty basic. If you hate sales, don't start a business that requires you to do sales all day. Like start a business, like constrain your ideas to the things that you're going to enjoy and be good at. It's my opinion. I love it. <laughs> that's, that's great advice. Thank you for that. So to the listener, that I'm pumped up. I hope you're pumped up as well from this idea. Go take some action. Ride that energy. Follow through on some of the steps that we've talked about here. Make up your own action steps and do that. Go ride a bike, fall off the bike, do it all. <laughs> Email us with the actions that you've taken at update at runwithit.fm. Tell us what you did. Everyone who emails in will get access to a private Facebook group. And one lucky listener will earn a free mentoring session from Rob and potentially a business partnership on this new idea. Rob, thank you so much for the time. Where can listeners go to find out more about you? If you go to robfitz.com, there's links to my books and my email is rob at robfitz.com. And one of the books, if you do want to chase this idea, is probably worth a read. It's called The Workshop Survival Guide. And a big part of it is everyone thinks workshops are about performance, being charismatic, but that's not true at all. It's about like the underlying education design and testing. So if you're new to education design and you want to try making these lesson plans or, or productizing this, uh, I'd recommend that you, uh, you give that one a read. And yeah, if you can't afford it, if you're like a total bootstrapper, just email me and we'll, uh, we'll sort you out. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, Rob, it's been great speaking with you. Great meeting you. Looking forward to talking again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. And uh, good luck with the businesses, everybody. I, uh, I wish you well. Now it's time for you to run with it. Follow through on the action steps discussed and email a summary of what you did to update at runwithit.fm. Every listener who emails us will gain exclusive access to a private Facebook group of action takers. And one listener will earn a free mentoring session with today's guest and potentially a business partnership. Help us build the Run With It community of generous entrepreneurs. Please like, subscribe, and review us online. And remember, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. Podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.